morning, everybody. So uh, I never quite know how lessons are going to turn out until they're done. Um, just putting that out there. Um, that that's probably as as true uh, will be uh, even more true today than than usual. Um, there's a chance, depending on how this goes, that we may go through the same chapter next week um, with a different angle. Or there's a chance I may just move right along. So <laughs> we'll see. So we are in Daniel chapter 7. And as Dad mentioned, um, we're shifting gears here a little bit. Uh, let's jump on in with verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. We'll stop here. Uh, verse 28 of chapter 6 says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of King Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And we know at that point from our calculations that he was in his 80s here. So this takes us back a king or two. Uh, so just to let you know, in terms of chronology, we're going backwards a, a bit. Uh, the second point is that it says Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Now we've had several dreams that we've been talking about. The position is usually where someone else is having the dream or the vision and Daniel is doing the interpreting. Here we have Daniel getting the dream and the vision and uh, we're going to go through that. I've talked periodically how some critics continue to look at Daniel and, and um, suggest that parts of this book may have been written retrospectively. Uh, that is also true in this chapter. Uh, some people point to the fact that, as we'll see, uh, people say, well, you know, if Daniel was so good at interpreting all these other dreams, why didn't he interpret his own dream? seems like an unfair shot to take <laughs> at Daniel but uh, anyway you kind of just that's the flavor of some of the people that you'll read well, let's go on and, and hear about this vision verse 2 Daniel declared I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings then as I looked at its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it and behold another beast a second one like a bear it was raised up on one side it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told arise devour much flesh after this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. 
I'm sure that's clear to everyone, so we're just going to move on to uh, <laughs> verse 9. <laughs> uh, you, you know, it's uh, parenthetically, let me say this. Um, there are certain medicines that we prescribe for, for things that occasionally will cause someone to have weird dreams. Most of the time, they're not pleasant, which doesn't seem fair, right? At least some of the times you would expect somebody to say, you know, I am having the best dreams. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the people that are having those just don't tell me because they don't want me to stop the medicine. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I only hear about the ones that, that aren't pleasant. In any event, um, dreams are interesting. So let me make a point here about the type of reading that we just had. Uh, this is... Um, apocalyptic language. This is metaphorical language. This is where uh, language uh, that is very visual but also uh, a little vague. Um, we, can, we can see some specifics here which I'll talk about in a minute but uh, writers use language like this when when there's maybe some mystery or when maybe the concepts are just too hard to understand otherwise. Uh, this was a, a description of his vision, of course, and even within this chapter, we'll, we'll see that, like many visions, you need help in interpreting it. Uh, so we're gonna have some interpretation of the vision in a minute. Uh, and then at some point we'll have some uh, maybe some application but uh, it, as you read things like this you you have to um, you just have to look at it different it's a different style of literature it's much more akin to poetry and and this is where how let me rephrase this I think this explains at least part of the reason that different readers can can interpret this in, in different ways because uh, it has to do with how specific you make language which may not be all that specific, okay? Uh, you can take a big view or you can take a very specific view. The more specific you try to make it, I think probably the more likely you are to get out on a limb that's shakier. The bigger view you make, the more general your interpretation, you're going to be on more solid ground, but you may not get as much benefit from it as is actually there. So just keep this in mind, there's a tension there. and. And you'll see scholars that that are some people are way over here and just keep it very big picture and and so the the lessons that they would get from this passage are very broad and thematic and useful to be sure, but they're very much in contrast to the people who might 
way out on the details, perhaps stretching the text a, a smidge, perhaps, and they may see lots of very specific application, but their footing may not be quite so secure. Okay, so just from a big picture standpoint, that, that doesn't just apply to here, but it applies to, um, it applies to a lot of the things that we'll be reading in the subsequent chapters. It takes practice to have that type of an ear for this type of language. All right, so who reads lots of poetry? Who reads lots of poetry? Not many hands are going up. <laughs> Much to the chagrin of, of uh, English teachers all over the world. Um, for the podcast records, no hand went up. <laughs> Not a single hand went up. Um, but this type of teaching has, uh, uh, or this type of account uh, has a lot in common with poetry. And, and it, uh, you have to kind of let the words kind of flow over you uh, before you decide if they have a point or not. Uh, I've talked to people who have a hard time reading certain things because even if it's narrative, it just doesn't make sense. And there's a, there's a skill you have to have where you're reading something and you know it doesn't make sense yet, but you kind of read in faith knowing that it's going to make sense later. You know what I mean? In the, in the study notes that I'll post, there's an example of a, of a poem that has a lot of this type of language. And um, it's, the language is so vague, anyone can use it for almost anything they want. Um, I'll leave it at that. Let's look at the specifics here. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Uh, the second was a bear. Uh, the third was a leopard. And then the fourth was unlike anything else. It had great iron teeth, etc., etc. We We touched on this a little bit when we went through the uh, dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, of the, uh, you remember the, the statue um, where the head was Babylon, the... Um, Next down with the, was the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the next down, again, depending on who you believe, was um, uh, the Greeks. And then uh, the last, down to the ten toes, remember the iron and feet of clay, or, or I'm sorry, the, the legs of iron and clay and the toes and so forth. Uh, people consider that to be Rome. So here we have, many people would say, uh, the same for uh, kingdoms being represented. Uh, this, the first, like a lion and eagle's wings, um, people look at that as uh, Babylon. The bear uh, raised up on one side, they say that's the Medes and the Persians. Uh, uh, one part was slightly more powerful, or significantly more power, powerful than the other. The Persians were more powerful, and that's why they say on its side that it was unequally matched. These um, three ribs in its mouth. Uh, some people say that refers to uh, some of the three main conquests uh, that the Persians had as they came to power. Uh, people look at verse 6, which says, a leopard with four wings of a bird. 
Uh, those are two um, uh, animal examples of great speed, uh, and people think that this might apply to Alexander the Great, um, who uh, in, in the Greek Empire, just the, the speed with which he took over that territory was amazing, and then they would uh, go on to say uh, these four wings of the bird and four heads. Um, he didn't live very long. His kingdom was divided into four um, um, princes, you might say, uh, or um, not really princes, they were more military commanders, but uh, his kingdom was divvied up in four ways. So there are a lot of supporting uh, features that would make sense if this was considered um, uh, Greece. And then this fourth beast um, is where things get a little bit more interesting. Uh, the uh, uh, interpreters would generally say this refers to Rome, uh, just as I was saying before. And um, then we get to this concept of, okay, Rome was great and powerful and savage and, you know, the iron teeth and all that kind of fits with that. Um, but then these ten horns. And so this creates a, a room for interpretation. Do the ten horns represent the ten main Caesars that happened, um, beginning with Julius Caesar and um, uh, Domitian, who uh, was one of the more uh, vile and uh, uh, you know persecuted Christians and so forth. Uh, some people would say that uh, uh, this all leads up to this ruler called Antiochus IV, who was very much known as a persecutor of uh, Jews in the second century, the, the centuries leading up to the birth of Christ, that intertestamental period that we hear about. Uh, but most people at least say it's Rome, and then they decide what to do with this ten horns, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, Dr. Lockett shows all that on yeah, most people would say that um, it's hard to really identify who these ten horns are. Some people say it's remnants of the Roman Empire. Uh, some people um, would take it, uh, okay, does that mean Europe? Uh, what, what does that mean? Um, so we'll, we'll dig into that a bit more. Verse 9, the vision shifts. He says, as I looked... Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So, this Ancient of Days... Who do you think that's trying to picture? 
probably God. I think God. Does God have clothing white as snow? Does God have white hair? No. Um, but again, this is this is figurative language. We have an ancient of days in a position of authority, this throne with fiery flames and so forth, the fire issuing out, this picture of judgment happening. Uh, there's a courtroom, there's authority present and so forth. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven there came out like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this referring to? Jesus? Again, uh, we have uh, the Ancient of Days giving over this kingdom. Uh, here we have two parts of the Trinity pictured for the purposes of the story as two separate entities. But again, we get the, we get the picture. We're getting um, a feel, really, uh, for everything that's going on. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So what's that? So Daniel is in this vision, pictures himself there, and in that moment asks, an angel perhaps? what is this <laughs> what 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 you know what does this mean what's what's the truth concerning all this he says so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of things here we go verse 17 these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth but the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So this fourth beast, he wanted to know more. He wanted to know more um, because it was different. Something else was going on. So, we, the interpreter gets back in the game in verse 23. 
Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As far as the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak with words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Uh, This had a physical effect on Daniel, hearing about all this, seeing all this. Um, It was physically affected. So let's go back to verse 23, and we have this interpretation. So we've got this fourth kingdom... Verse 24, ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. So what's, what's this all about? I think the, the general concept that, that um, kind of the conservative evangelical, and we'll get into how people classify themselves at some point down the road, but people would say that in some fashion out of perhaps out of the remnants of the Roman Empire you have ten kingdoms, ten nations there's some shifting of power so that three of them fall and and in their place one becomes much more dominant this small horn that that speaks actually against the Almighty Um, we have this verse 25 he shall speak words against the Most High he shall wear out the saints of the Most High shall think to change the times and the law Um, he's amassing power, changing things in some tumultuous way. And it says, and they, that is, I think, referring to the saints, they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So here we have a reference to, to time. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, uh, there's a little bit of, you know, in fairness to the critics, there's a little circular reasoning here. Back when we heard about Nebuchadnezzar or was it Belshazzar? I get him. That became an animal. For, the reference there is to times and we said that that was probably seven years. And We said it was probably seven years because in Daniel 7 that same word is used and it was thought to be three and a half years. And the people that look at Daniel 7 say this is three and a half years because 
Earlier in Daniel, it talks about seven, and we think those were years, so they each refer to each other. But later in the book, we're going to hear some, some references to, uh, to weeks, some references to other days that works out to be three and a half years. We know in Revelation, in terms of the Great Tribulation, uh, think of seven years, the first, and there's a division in this first half of three and a half years. So people look at this phrase, a time being a year, times being more than one year, they say, well, okay, well, that's two years, and half a time is half a year, so they add all those up and come up with three and a half years. So that sounds plausible, at least. Again, how specific do we make these? Um, but I think if you start to take in the latter parts of Daniel that we'll get to and some parts of Revelation that we'll also get to, um, this is probably fair. So you get down to all this discussion about who this last horn is, this other horn that's going to come up and put down these other three kings. A lot of people say that that's referring to the Antichrist uh, as as who that is all right so what do we do with all this so part of it is what I said we have to do where you have to just hold these images in your head in faith that they're going to make a little more sense later but there are some applications that we can make about what we heard today. One point. No matter how powerful any nation or government seems to be, there's always going to be another one behind it. I guarantee you, at the height of any of these empires it would have seemed to the people and perhaps even the rulers there there was literally no end in sight there is no way this can't go on forever but they all had a stopping point In these first three examples, each kingdom was taken down by a, a successor kingdom until the last one, where God takes it down. So part of the message here is that none of this is going to take the Ancient of Days by surprise. This is not a threat. He has the authority to sit on that throne and to dispense the judgment as he sees fit. And that is, in fact, what's going to happen. Dominion will be taken away from those that are in power and will be given over via the Son of Man eventually to the saints.
there's definitely a picture of evil in the world in this chapter. Is there evil in the world today? Of course. I saw a slide and I thought I misread the caption. It said the number of school shootings since January 18th or January 2018. I thought it was a misprint. I thought it was maybe all school shootings. But no, it was true. There have been 20 or 30 school shootings this year. A copy of that with the footnote is going to be in the study notes. It's sobering. How many states have not had a school shooting since Columbine? Nine states have not had a school shooting. crazy. There is definitely evil out there. I think this has something to say about can we expect any nation really to fix that type of evil? I think no. <laughs> Maybe there's some, I'm not saying there aren't things that couldn't be done to improve the situation. Certainly, we need to try, but uh, these are spiritual problems with spiritual solutions. We're not, we're not there yet. There was a, um, this poem I referred to, it, at the beginning, I'll, I'll quote a little bit of it. Many of you may have heard these phrases. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Sounds kind of apocalyptic language, doesn't it? Um, there have been speeches that talk about that the sinner cannot hold. Um, this blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of incidence uh, um, of innocence is drowned. I mean, that sounds like so many things you could apply it to. Uh, the context for this. Um, by uh, William Yates was in the aftermath of World War I. Surely he thought, in fact this, this poem is called The Second Coming, surely he thought things are crazy. How could it get any crazier? But it did and it has and it continues to do so. So, we've had a little taste of apocalyptic language. We've had a little taste of um, imagery. We've had uh, a picture of some kingdoms and kingdoms and kingdoms and of horns and of 
horns that are going away and horns that are rising up. Crazy talk, right? But we're going to look at it more and more. Um, the big idea is we win in the end. We win. So I guess one application as we wrap up. Oh, a little late. As the waves in our personal lives, one bad thing after another, that seems sometimes, I think we can appropriately have faith that those aren't blind to God either. And he knows. And uh, he is the one that can give us dominion over those things as well. So let's close. Father, we thank you. Even for the things that we don't understand, we take it by faith that you are in control and that you've always got us firmly in your grasp. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Until next week. No.